I need to make time for meal planning and for cooking because that is my top priority. Health is number one. And I need to make sure that I have time to do yoga twice a week and to get in some exercise because that's my top priority. So aside from delivering at work, if I have a choice to make in the evening, it's going to be to come home, make dinner and do some yoga. Whereas before it was to rush to a meeting, go to bed too late, not get enough sleep and then go back to work the next day. You're listening to the Embrace Simplified podcast, where you will be inspired to unlock simpler, healthier ways to live your life. I'm a corporate ladder climber turned entrepreneur on a mission to help busy women feel their best. I'm bringing you real conversation with all my favorites, and we're talking wellness, relationships, money, business, career, and even parenting. I want you to laugh and cry, learn and grow right alongside me. I'm your host, Kirsty. Let's keep it real. Pour your coffee and turn it up. Together, we are going to simplify our life. Hey guys, welcome back to the Embrace Simplified podcast. Today, we have a conversation. Oh man, I love this conversation. We are going to talk with Caitlin first about really hard shit that she's gone through. And we're going to talk about her resilience and how she lived intentionally through it and how she made hard choices and radical shifts to the priorities in her life in order to make space and shake things up and get through something really hard. We're going to talk about her struggles with infertility, her journey to becoming a mother, and man, I love this conversation. You got to listen in carefully in this episode because seriously, Caitlin had so many amazing truth bombs to deliver. I am so honored that she joined us on this. And honestly, if somebody is listening to this and maybe for you, it hasn't been infertility, but maybe there's something else that's extremely hard and you feel like you're going through it privately and you're not letting anyone in to see the struggle. And so you're going it alone. I hope that you listen to this episode and I hope you see that there's another way that you can do this and that you don't have to hide. You don't have to be ashamed or scared of letting people in. I hope that's what you see. I absolutely love this story of hope and resilience and determination. And yeah, I just loved it. Caitlin is super successful in her career. She's a director of corporate communications. Like I said, she's a new mom. She's such an important part of her community. And in fall 2021, she is going to be adding author to that amazing list of accomplishments. I'm really excited that she's here with us. So let's dive in. So today I'm here with Caitlin and Caitlin is a writer. She is a communications manager and she also lived in my neighborhood in the city. And so I got to do book club with Caitlin and I follow her online. And really, I am excited to learn your whole story with everybody else because I haven't actually heard the whole thing. So welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Thanks, Caitlin. Awesome. So Tell us you are a new mom in a pandemic and how is that going? 
overall pretty good. I mean, I don't really know any different. Uh, I was joking with someone the other day that when all of this settles down and hopefully things, you know, go back to some sense of normalcy, you know, I'm going to have to figure out how to be a mom in a normal setting because right now I just, you know, stay at home and order my groceries and do the odd outdoor distanced meetup now that it's getting a little bit nicer. So I thought, oh, how do I go places and do things? I don't know. It's going to be interesting. It's good. You have a good attitude about it. So talk to us a little bit about the book that you're working on and share with us. I know motherhood for you was a long journey and we want to hear about that because I know this is a story that can resonate and give hope to a lot of people. So I want to hear more. Sure. Yeah. So I'm, I like to think fairly young. (laughs) I'm currently 34. And so my husband and I were married in 2015. And, you know, like many 29 year olds at the time, you think, okay, well, now I'm married. We had built a home together in, in Toronto. And now it's time for us to start our family like everyone else would want to do. And so When we started trying on our honeymoon, actually in India and Dubai, which I thought was going to be this fanciful, wonderful conception story, right? Under the lights of Diwali in in, in India, followed by romantic dinners on the beach in Dubai. I mean, of course, that's just how it's going to happen. That sounds dreamy. (laughs) Right? It sounds awesome. And so, you know, I even got home from my honeymoon, was confident that we were pregnant, of course. Why wouldn't we be? And ran out to Hudson Bay, you know, bought these little socks that I could use that we, our honeymoon was in November that I could use to give our parents as gifts at Christmas time to announce the big news. And sure enough, we were not pregnant that quickly. And what ensued was really a four year journey to have our first child, which I'm happy to say we had Marielle in August of 2020. And so it took a little bit longer than we expected. And, you know, you you go your whole life pretty much trying not to get pregnant. And when the time comes and it doesn't happen easily, it's a little bit of a, a surprise. So I certainly had a lot of sort of growth and development over that time. And, and I think part of it was really just coming to terms with the fact that we may not be able to have biological children. So we tried for on and off for about a, a year and a half. And, you know, we traveled a lot for work. We were always kind of coming and going. And so you you kind of make assumptions in your mind like, well, maybe it just didn't mesh up this month or maybe it's just because we're traveling etc and so you have all these ideas as to why it's not really working and you're not really too focused on it too much in the beginning and as time went on and they say infertility technically is after a year of trying without contraception we decided to go to our family doctor to see you know what the options might be and so because it had already been a year and a half she referred us to a fantastic clinic in Toronto for some fertility kind of testing. And so that resulted in basically a month of going in almost every day for blood work and what I like to call the ultrasound probe. So there's external and internal when you have, go through fertility. There's a lot of internal ones. And you mentioned the book. Part of what I was doing through that time was just making notes of the experience because it's it was so wild. And so probes are common throughout the the book here and there and i i like to say in one part there's nothing quite like starting your day with a cold hard probe 
It's just, there's nothing quite like it. And especially when you have to do it a lot. <laughs> wow. So I had no idea. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So not to get into too much detail, but anyway, the testing ensued and there was nothing really clearly wrong. I had low AMH, which is basically low egg reserve. And then Alex had some small things too, but nothing crazy that they said, okay, this is why it's not working. And so they indicated that, you know, we should have pretty good luck, you know, nine months, typically people are pregnant and to go at it there. So we did uh, three, what are called interuterine inseminations and none of those worked. And it was around that time that I really started to think, oh my gosh, you know, these didn't work. Like that's not good. Like something's actually wrong. And that was a, a pretty pivotal moment there. I'm just giving the Coles notes and we can come back to it if you want. And then following the third failed IUI, we decided to go for IVF. So I had an egg extraction and I think I got about eight eggs the first time. And what happens is they call you the next day to let you know how many eggs have fertilized and into embryos. And so they called us and none of them fertilized. And so we were just completely shocked. Had no idea that that was even a possibility. Felt completely lost and, and unsure of where to go from there. And eventually came to terms that we would try one last time. And keep in mind, these are, you know, twenty dollars to $30,000 endeavors. And so we tried again. I spent five months preparing my body, doing acupuncture, Chinese medicine, vitamins, all of the things I could possibly do. We got 14 eggs the second time, 10 of them fertilized. And I'm happy to say that we got six pretty good quality embryos, which are frozen, one of them now being Marielle. So that's the Coles Notes kind of high level of the process that it was, obviously without too much insight into the, the emotional side of it. Yeah, I'm as I'm hearing you describe this to me, my mind is going crazy with like, how is your mental health and your emotional health during this entire process? Yeah, it, it was tough. It was really tough. It was really the best way to describe it is like a roller coaster. So you have periods of time when you're like, okay, I got this, we can do this, you know, this is going to work and, and you're feeling confident and, and positive. And then Many, many times when you're on that low track of, you know, am I ever going to be able to be a mother? You know, why is this not working? What's wrong with me? Maybe I don't even deserve to be a parent, you know, a lot of challenges. And really, it, it is a mental load in the sense that you just it's so unknown and you don't know why it's happening in my case. And you don't know if you're ever going to have kids and, and you really when you really want to, that's a bit of a, a challenge. The other side to it, aside from just the unknown and the wondering, is that it really is a daily slog of tests. I mean, I work in Thornhill. I live in Etobicoke. And so very often, every day, I'd be driving down to Young and Bloor for 7 a.m., getting blood work and ultrasound, racing up the 404, trying to get to work on time, often would be late. And so you'd say, oh, traffic, et cetera. And so I think that was one of the big lessons for me was that I spent so long trying to keep it all together and make it so that nobody would know what was going on. And so, you know, rushing around that mental load itself was even more difficult, I would say, than the unknown of, of what was going on. 
And so as I started to prepare for the second IVF, I just found myself in this really deep, almost feeling of dread. I was like, I can't do this again while pretending like everything's fine. And going into acupuncture, going into tests, going to work, pretending like everything's perfectly great. You know, I do media interviews as part of my role. And so having to be on and clear and communicating and all of that kind of stuff is, it was extremely draining. And so I got to a point where I was in a coaching class as part of a leadership development piece of our our company. And in the middle of the, the coaching class, I basically just burst into tears. And I thought to myself, like, oh, my God, I can't believe I just did that. This is terrible. And so afterwards, I confided in the, the coach and I said, it wasn't necessarily just what I was sharing from a work perspective as to why I was upset today. I've been dealing with this thing and I've been trying to keep it all together and not let it impact my performance. And she asked me an extremely interesting question, which totally shifted my perspective and trajectory on that, which was, you know, Caitlin, you seem like someone who is, you know, an overachiever who really is going above and beyond to do the best job that you can do in your work. What would it look like if you took that same approach to just doing what you need to do to take care of yourself and navigate this time? What would that look like? Like being extraordinary at basically having the vulnerability to ask for the support that you need. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting, you know, flip of the coin. I've been focused so much on being excellent at my job. What would it look like if I was excellent at taking care of myself to a point that I could actually get this thing done? And so from there, I basically told my boss, I told my team, I shared it with my broader online network. I shared it with the individuals throughout my company who I work closely with. And I was absolutely stunned with how many people that I work with every day who shared with me, you know, oh, I did, I went through that last year, or I had three miscarriages last year, and it was really tough. And, you know, it's great that you're sharing this, and I can totally appreciate it. Not only did I not lose respect and it wasn't difficult in the sense of, oh, now she's, they're going to think, this is my main worry was, they're going to think I'm slacking or whatever because I'm going through this thing. Not only did that not happen, actually my relationships were strengthened and I got more respect from the people that I worked with because of the fact that I had shown a little bit of vulnerability instead of pretending like everything was perfect. And so that was huge when it came to being able to mentally navigate this thing. I didn't have to hide anymore and I didn't have to pretend like everything was great because really I had just shared what was happening and taken that pressure off. (laughs) I'm getting emotional as as you're talking about it because there's so much there. What you're saying is so true that you opened yourself up to be vulnerable and then you gained more respect because we're all just human at the end of the day, right? Yeah. We protect ourselves. We, especially as ambitious women, we kind of try to separate, like really separate personal from professional, sometimes at a serious, serious cost to our own well-being. So as your employer and these people that you're working with are supporting you, what comes out of that? Well, it was amazing. I I, I mean... Prior to that, everything was, all my energy was focused on 
pretending like everything was fine. And so all of that was now put away because all of that energy didn't need to be spent doing that. I was able to say, hey, I'm going to have to go into the doctor's office every morning at seven and I'm going to be 20 minutes late every single day for the next month and a half, for example. And my boss would say, okay, great. You know, I trust you'll make up the time and get your stuff done. And again, I have a very supportive workplace and boss, so that helps. Not everybody has that, you know, opportunity. Or I could say to my team, listen, for this two-week period, I'm going to be really hormonal because I'm shooting, you know, progesterone and estrogen into my stomach with a needle every morning and night. Can you take my immediate interviews for that period of time? Because I just don't have the mental capacity to prepare for that stuff. Sure. No problem. You know, making requests that before I would never have made because I needed to do it all myself and make sure that it wasn't impacting work. And I think the biggest one was when I had a, because when you start to share this stuff and everybody has stuff, and this is what I say to my team too, you know, in my case, it's fertility. You, you might have an ailing parent. You might have a family member or someone dealing with addiction. You, you know, there's so many things that we all carry all the time. It's okay to make requests and let people know what's going on because as you said, we are all human and we're not perfect. And so I had a conversation with someone who I very much respect, who I had volunteered with politically. And she had shared with me that she was actually bipolar. And she had taken six weeks off work to get herself, you know, back to where she needed to be with medication, etc. And I was absolutely stunned because I just had no idea that she was struggling with something like that. And she felt like she could share it because I had shared my experience. And it led me to think, wow, if this person can take six weeks off work, then maybe I can too, right? Like I, I was so focused on being perfect and pretending like everything was good that that was just so outside of the realm of the possible for me that it wasn't even on the radar. And so I thought, hmm, okay. So that actually then prompted me to, I took five weeks off work before my second IVF egg extraction, which was the best thing I possibly could have done. And I did it with no apologies because it was something that I needed to do. And that was my priority. And I wasn't worried about looking good anymore because everybody knew what was going on. Oh, yes. I hope that whoever is listening to this, that needs that permission to just ask. For me, it was supporting a spouse with mental illness. Like you, you're exactly right. There are so many different circumstances and things that people are dealing with, but giving themselves permission to ask for what they need to be able to support themselves or those that they live with. Wow. Okay. So you take this five weeks off, you take care of yourself. You're like just a bad ass at taking care of yourself. Tell us about how did you figure that process out? I don't know what felt good to do in that time. Cause I would imagine, like you said, that there's a lot of emotional feelings, like you said, dread and other things going on. Were there ways that you were able to simplify that piece? I know that's a topic that comes up here yeah. often, which is like simplifying and self-care, right? Absolutely. So for me, the big turning point was after the third failed IUI, which uh, it's not too invasive of a, a procedure. It's the kind of the thing they do before you go into IVF, which is much more invasive. And so after that third IUI, I thought to myself, like, oh, geez, you know, as I mentioned, like this, this is 
something else is going on here. And just to give you a, a, a picture, you know, at that time in my life, I was obviously working full time. I was volunteering on two boards as a girl guide leader. I was out and about all the time trying to keep up with friends, you know, very busy all the time. And so I said to myself, hmm, I'm going to have to make some changes here because this isn't working. Whatever I'm doing right now is not working and this is important to me and I need to take a look at it. And so what I did was I actually wrote out in not what they should be, but what my priorities at the time actually were. And at the top of the list was community involvement. Like, so number one, most important thing, the thing that I would not let drop, you know, you better believe I'm going to be at that board meeting, for example, right? It doesn't matter if I need to have an eaten dinner, like I'm going to go to that board meeting because the people are counting on me to be there. And so community involvement was number one. My job was number two. My friends and family was number three. My health was number four, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. And so here I am in the middle of what's the biggest challenge of my life, focused entirely on health. And months into the process, health is number four. You know, like, oh, maybe that's something that I need to look at. And so I simply switched. I flipped the priority. I put health as number one. And then I put still my job as number two because I have to make a living and friends and family as number three and community involvement fell to the bottom. And so what that looked like was I stepped down from two boards. I became less involved with girl guides. I was like the head girl guide leader, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I just became kind of a helper girl guide leader. There was a number of actions that I was able to take based on that priority list. And so you know, honestly evaluating what my priorities were and identifying actions that I could take that helped me to realign to what actually mattered. It was really interesting. So a normal week for me would have been going to work, rushing to a meeting, getting home, probably getting takeout on the way, for example, most nights. And, you know, the following week, once I had reprioritized, it's like, well, I need to make time for meal planning and for cooking because that is my top priority. Health is number one. And I need to make sure that I have time to do yoga twice a week and to get in some exercise because that's my top priority. So aside from delivering at work, if I have a choice to make in the evening, it's going to be to come home, make dinner and do some yoga. Whereas before it was to rush to a meeting, go to bed too late, not get enough sleep and then go back to work the next day. So I think when you really look at your priorities and evaluate them honestly, it becomes pretty easy to make choices and take actions that are aligned with those. It's just that sometimes we're not really so present to what those priorities really are. Oh, I agree so much. And as I hear you sharing what they were, I think... I'm just guessing, but I have a feeling that you and I were probably raised very similarly with parents that were very involved in the community and giving back a lot of time. So sometimes it takes a moment, I think, in our adult life to be like, what? how did I get here? And it's not a bad thing. Obviously, it's a beautiful thing that you were giving so much time to your community. But sometimes we just do what maybe had felt most natural. I don't know. Does that resonate for you? Totally. And and I think what's really interesting about it as well, and, and this is where, you know, so much self-reflection over the course of this experience for me, but, 
you know, I think for me, to your point, absolutely. So my mom, you know, she was a local mayor. She's an entrepreneur. She's always involved. Even now, she's a politician in, in Coburg. Like, she's always involved. And she loves doing that. And so that was something for me that I always was doing. But it's funny because as I was editing the book, the editor actually asked me a question. So I basically was writing through this whole process. I'm now writing a, a memoir about the experience. And so she said to me, it's funny, you don't ask yourselves the simplest question sometimes. And she said, so let me ask you, why is it that you want to have a family? And I was like, oh, that's a good question. You know, I think you just go, you go, 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 and you're trying to get something done. And then you're like, yeah, that's a great question. Why do I want to have a family? You know, not everybody does. And not everybody would go through what we went through to have one. So why? Why is it so important to me? And so when I reflected on it, I realized that, you know, I was raised by a single mom who worked a lot and she wasn't around a ton. And she did her best to, you know, raise three kids on her own. And, and because of that, I was often at babysitters or I had found kind of friends along the way that had, you know, strong family units. And I never really had that experience of, you know, coming home after school and eating dinner with a family and talking about your day and working on your homework. Like, it just wasn't something that I ever experienced. And so what I realized as I was reflecting on it was that I had been longing for that and that feeling of just true acceptance and family and, you know, unbridled, I got your back no matter what, my whole life. And that's what I wanted to create. You know, I want to have that family unit and that experience so that I can build that for my kids. And when you look at the community involvement piece, what I find really interesting about it is that here it was where that was my top priority, because that's how I survived all those years, right? Like, instead of going home to an empty house with not much going on and quiet silence, I would go out and I started a soup kitchen when I was 15 <laughs> or I'd be playing soccer or, you know, volunteering at the local arena or whatever. But I was doing something out of the house because I didn't really have a super family unit structured family life. And so what I had to do during this process, and that I only realized it in retrospect, was I had to give up the, the survival mechanism almost that I had from the past, which was being out all the time and doing everything for other people. And, and actually just refocus on if I want to build a family and this is why I want to do it, then I've got to do that for me and put my priorities first and like be at home before I have that built you know, the way that I want it to be. So it's interesting how you have to kind of come to terms with the person that you've been and the person that you want to be. And there's some, there's some loss in that, that, you know, I'm not going to be able to contribute the way that I used to in the past because my top priority is having a strong family unit that's healthy and happy. Mm, I really like that. That's a really good point. And it's like, this really challenging, difficult thing in your life forced you in some ways to reprioritize, uh, to get really clear in that. So tell us a little bit more about the book. So who is this book for? And what's the process been like of writing? Because you're in communication. So I know you're a writer. But what's it been like writing a book and a memoir, especially? 
It's been amazing. You know, it's funny. The first thing I ever wanted to be when I was a kid was an author. And obviously that went down by the wayside. And and I felt like this was the first thing that actually mattered enough for me that it was worth putting it on paper. And so I kept notes of the experience as I went throughout. And then it wasn't until pretty deep into the process that I actually started to sit down and write a novel. At the time, I thought it was a novel. And so it was actually quite therapeutic for me because I was able to get on paper what I was thinking and feeling and working through some of the things that I was experiencing. And then I had a conversation with someone who's also published a book and she said, well, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to decide if it's a novel or a memoir. And I was like, okay, what's the difference? (laughs) And so she said, well, a memoir is you, right? It's you, it's your name. You're telling your story and that's scary. A novel is made up. That's with characters, right? So how are you presenting this to the world? Is it about you or is it about a character? And I said, well, it's about me. And and she said, and is it all true or is it all other liberties that you've taken? I said, no, it's all true. Okay, well, I hate to tell you, but you're writing a memoir. I was like, okay, well, good to know. Here we go. So that was kind of step one. So I finished my first draft last year and it was about 60,000 words which was pretty felt pretty epic to kind of finish it and I was able to connect with an excellent editor here based in Toronto and she took a look at it and said that she would take me on and so she did what we call a structural edit so she looked at kind of the, the story and the sequencing and what she made me realize was that I was telling the story of what happened in a very kind of like, this is what IVF is, and this is how it's hard, and after this you can expect this. And she said to me, you know, at its core, this is a love story, right? This is a story about you and your husband and your love for each other and building a family. I want to know more about who you are and why you're that way and how you met each other and the grief and the loss and the relationship building and all the, you know, more vulnerable stuff, which I had originally conveniently left out. (laughs) I think I mentioned Alex, like, maybe three times or something in the whole book. I was like, Oh, my God, (laughs) that's your husband. Like, yeah, I was like, well, that might have been a little blind spot. So now I'm working on the second draft, I'm pretty deep into it. And it's much more you know, deep and vulnerable and connected to the real kind of growth and and character personality and all that kind of stuff that you really have to take a look at when you're through this. So it's definitely a story about, you know, IVF and going through fertility struggles, but it's more so a story about, you know, family and what we were kind of talking about before on why it matters and, and what you're willing to do to get it. And, what that kind of looks like and the growth that that comes along with it. So I'm I'm really excited. I I think it's going to be a great read for anyone who's interested in learning more about IVF without it being too kind of medical and, you know, boring. (laughs) And I think anyone who has gone through any sort of experience like this will get a lot out of it too, just to realize that a lot of what you feel and think you know, it's it's quite common, it's quite universal. And so often you feel like you're the only one going through something alone. But, you know, I what I got from sharing, as I've shared so far, is that it's so common. So many people are dealing with these issues. 
everywhere you look around in your office, you know, it's your friend group. And now that I see it, because I've shared, I, I kid you not, I get about five to 10 people a month through friends or, you know, acquaintances who reach out to me saying, I'm starting IVF. I know you're so open with it. I just want to ask you some questions. Like five to 10 people in my direct network a month who can reach out to me because I shared my story and they feel open and happy. And 90% of those people, nobody else knows. They have not told a soul. And that works for some people. For me, it didn't work. But these people are going through this stuff alone, largely. And it's scary and very unpredictable. You have no control over anything. And so I think reading this story will help people to know that they're not alone, but then also those who may not realize that they've got a lot of people around them that are probably dealing with this stuff. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I can see how that would be really therapeutic to read and totally feel seen and like somebody else went through that experience with you. But then I also think about if you're supporting somebody, like if a daughter or a friend or someone is going through this, how powerful that would be to read your story and just be able to show up with so much more empathy. Absolutely. Because people have no idea because nobody tells them. I'm like, you're right. I'm sure people reach out to you because it is one of those things. I can think of like a few things in my life where I've hid from my, even my own story. Like I have left friends out. I have left close, like loved ones out. Cause I just don't even want to deal with that part of my life that's going on. Right. And then we hide from it and it just causes so much. I can, as you're telling me this story, I'm like, how many people became like low performing because they couldn't get support at work or they moved jobs because they got, you know, maybe anxious that they weren't performing or, I can imagine even losing friends in that process if you weren't filling anyone in and you were trying to go through all of this by yourself and not able to, like you talk about the emotional part where you were getting shots every day for two weeks and you're feeling like your hormones and your body weren't yours. (laughs) Like that would be so difficult. And your spouse can only understand to a certain degree, really. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, what it looks like is being flaky. When, like when it comes to friends, right? Because, you know, you can't drink, you can't go out to dinner all the time, you can't be doing all this stuff, you really have to kind of hunker down. In, in my case, again, everybody's different. And so, you know, you don't go out to dinners, you say no to social events, because you don't want to explain why you're not drinking wine, or, you know, why you can't have XYZ food all the time or I have to be home to do this or I'm sorry I know that yoga doesn't seem like a big priority to you but I've got yoga on Tuesday nights and it's really important to me you know and so if you're hiding why it just kind of seems like geez they never show up anymore you know why I'm going to stop inviting her because she's clearly got other priorities but I have no idea that you're what you're doing and and what you're going through so it, it really does often come across as more flaky and kind of reserved because You're just saying no to stuff that before you would have said yes to in a heartbeat. Yeah. Well, just for the record, you never seemed like a flake to me. (laughs) But but I also kind of felt like I remember once going over to your place, you were hosting book club. And I remember leaving being like, I actually didn't even know that you didn't have children. I actually just living in our community, you were you were so, so much a part of the community. And, you know, friends with all these moms. And I actually was like, oh, I didn't realize that she didn't have children. And I, 
I think at some point, maybe it was that moment where you started to share. And, and I remember connecting yes. with you a few times when you'd taken that time for yourself and you were really like maybe off work and just doing things differently. Then I remember sort of being like feeling like I caught up with what right. was going on and like, wow. Yeah. Do you think that maybe do you have any advice for someone supporting this, whether it's a friend or a neighbor or someone in their family? Like how should people show up for a person that's going through this type of thing? Yeah, so there's a couple things that are really, really easy things to do or not do. And so number one is you never know who is going through this stuff around you. So as a rule of thumb, just never ask someone if they're trying to have kids. <laughs> like, just don't do it. Don't ask anybody like, oh, are you guys trying? Or, oh, like, are you going to have a family soon? Or even people who have a kid already, you know, oh, are you going to have a second? Just cut that out of your conversation. Never, ever do it because just imagine that person, like if, if they're asked that multiple times a month, it's very draining and they'll tell you if they want to. Right. And so that kind of thing is just just an easy thing to I make it a, a purpose now. Like I never ask someone if they're trying to have kids, if they're going to have another kid. It's really none of my business. And they're going to tell me if they want. So that's number one, is just take that out of your plethora of things you can talk about. Number two is, if you do know someone who is going through it, who has shared, so whether it's a you know miscarriage or going through IVF or struggling at the beginning, you don't need to have any solutions or any answers. The only thing you need to do, and the most important thing, is to just check in and not, not check in in a way that's like, oh, how are you doing? You know, this is, is it, this must be so hard. Just say, hey, and I, I know a number of people, as I mentioned, that are going through this stuff right now. And it's very easy to go, hey, just wanted to let you know, I've been thinking about you, you know, and I'm here for you. Or, hey, hope you're doing okay. Just, you know, send in lots of love your way. Those types of touch points are perfect because if the person is in a mood where they want to share, then they're going to come back and say, oh, thanks so much. Actually, you know what? I had a miscarriage this past month and it was far along and it was, it's was it been really hard. Like a number of times people have said stuff like that to me and I'm like, oh, wow, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that. They're opening up that conversation so then we can have it. Or they'll say, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Love you. Bye. And so, but they know that I'm thinking of them and that I'm there for them if they need it. That's literally all you have to do. It's the simplest thing, but it's often the hardest thing because you're not sure what to say. It's totally natural to not know what to do in that situation. Mm, that's good advice. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. All right. So we are going to leave all the information about where you can find Caitlin's book or follow her online and anything else that she's up to when this podcast comes out. We'll make sure that's all included in the show notes. And I just want to thank you so much for being here today and sharing your story and being vulnerable with us. So thank you. Thank you for having me and giving me the opportunity. Okay, are you coffee or tea girl? Coffee. All right. Do you do meditations or affirmations? Uh, meditation. Okay. And real books or audiobooks? I was real book pre-kid. I'm audiobook now. <laughs> right? We could listen to them <laughs> anywhere. We could be folding those onesies like for the third yeah. day in a row. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Okay. Cardio or yoga? Yoga. Okay. And if you could live by the water or the mountains, which one would you pick? 
grew up on the St. Lawrence River, so water all the way. Me too. I I I'm like maybe one day I'll get both, but I'll pick water for now. Awesome. Well, I can finally say I am a best-selling author. Wow. Guys, it doesn't feel real, but it is true. My first book launched at the beginning of May and Life Love Lemonade has been getting some amazing feedback. This is a collection of stories about healing and overcoming life's lemons. And the stories in this book and the authors are truly something special. If you're going through a hard time right now, or you want to be just lifted up by a bunch of badass women who went through hard stuff and came out the other side, changed, maybe wiser, (laughs) definitely more intentional. This is a great read. You can buy the book anytime on Amazon and I still have a few signed copies left. So feel free to send me a DM or email if you'd like to pick up one of those. Thank you guys so much for all of your encouragement and your purchases and just the feedback. I love seeing where you're reading from. Nothing makes my week sweeter than getting your messages of where you're reading the book and what's resonating for you. And really just, I felt so vulnerable sharing parts of my story in writing that I hadn't really said out loud or shared before. And you guys have been just the most encouraging and supportive group. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Embrace Simplified, the podcast. I hope you picked up some inspiration today and that you take action to feel your best. Can you guys do me a solid? If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. It helps more people find the podcast. If you know someone who needs to hear this episode, shoot them a text right now and share it. I love getting those notes from friends. And I also love seeing where you're listening from. So please keep tagging us online at Embrace Simplified. Don't forget to subscribe so you can catch new episodes as they drop. Until next time, I'm your host, Kirsty. Remember, you have it in you to simplify your life.